figarun ke imis tu suton e hontes perikimenon imin nefos marturon, okon opothemeni panta ketin e farisaten amartian di upomenis trechon, ton prochimenon imin agona, aforontes in tontis pisteos archigon ke telioton, Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The reading of the word from Hebrews 2, 10 through 13. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you today. How are we feeling? Feeling pretty good? All right. All right, so I, I do have one little bit of a rant that I want to get off of my chest. But before I do that, I want to welcome all of you that are watching online. It's good to have you with us. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, we were over at the park, and it was a good, uh, good space, good turnout, good energy. But they did not think I was funny at all, which was quite offensive. So I'm counting on you to redeem my day, all right? So let's just... Let's force it, okay? That's the only way we're going to make it through. Also, uh, Zane led a tremendous gathering over at the Acre. Our college students are gathering there. Uh, so the, these four expressions of Highland right now, they're all uh, experiencing different levels of vitality and excitement. But I am excited because it allows us to see all of the different ways that, that we are being able to worship God together in safe and socially distant ways. First, the rant. I am thoroughly disappointed at the future hope that I have in Trivial Pursuit. This is simply because I cannot remember anyone's phone numbers anymore. How many of you can remember your phone number? How many of you can't? How many of you can remember 10 phone numbers? Ah, few of you, but not very many. You see what I'm saying now? Now that we've had these kind of outboard memory devices, we don't have to keep things in our heads anymore, which means like pub trivia nights, trivial pursuit with your family. I don't know if that has a shelf life and I think it's going away. And that makes me feel kind of sad personally because I used to have like a lot of useless facts in my head and, and I'm, I'm moaning that loss, I'm mourning that. It's terrible. So to assuage my grief, I would like to ask a question and if you know the answer, just shout it out. Does anyone know the first person to summit Mount Everest. What was their name? Does anybody know? Say again. Oh my goodness. David. You're absolutely wrong. It was Edmund Hillary. Edmund Hillary is first on your, uh, I guess on the left there. Uh, he was the first person to climb. He was a Kiwi from New Zealand. Because of his attempt to be the first person to climb the highest point in the world, he was, uh, kind of became a national treasure which points to the low bar of what it takes to become a national treasure in New Zealand. Uh, he did it, though, but the person right next to him is the second person to climb. I guess you maybe know a little more about the controversy of Mount Everest than most of us would be willing to admit. Yes, 
Uh, that's Tenzing Norgay. He was a Sherpa. Now, I want you to understand why Mount Everest was thought to believe that it could not be climbed. Because Mount Everest is so high, at certain times of the year, the jet stream hits the top of that mountain, which means that winds of 200 miles an hour or faster will brace the top of Mount Everest. It is also the highest point of the year, which means that there is very little oxygen up there. But this man, Hillary, and his friend Norgay, a Sherpa, were able to do it. By the way, a Sherpa is not a job, it's a people. Sherpa are people that lived up in the Himalayas. Their bodies for generations became well adapted to low oxygen levels, and it makes them particularly adept at climbing mountains. In fact, if you look at that picture, you will notice which one of them is carrying those oxygen bottles and which one is not. And so you might confuse the image of Sherpa with someone schlepping gear. And that's half truth, but the reality is they are a guide. Sherpas on the mountain know what's good ice and what's dangerous ice. Sherpas on the mountain know how to guide people through a crevasse. People on the, Sherpas on the mountain know when it's time to turn around and go back because the weather is going to kill you. But the truth is, until Hillary and Norgay made a way and proved it could be done, no one else could. Or I want to tell you the story of Katherine Johnson. You know, computers didn't used to be made of silicon. They used to be made of carbon, which is to say the computers weren't machines. They were people. And, and space flight is kind of an exact science where a rounding error could be the difference between a successful launch and return or just hurtling off into the vastness of space. And so in the early days of, of the U.S. exploration of space, John Glenn, one of the first astronauts, wouldn't go on a flight until this woman, Katherine Johnson, personally rechecked the flight equations. Katherine's competence and accuracy paved the way for women and people of color to be part of the engineering team at NASA. Here's a picture of Katherine Johnson receiving the highest civilian award by President Barack Obama. Or I want to tell you the, the story of Roger Bannister. Before Roger Bannister, uh, people believed, uh, scientists believed, that it was impossible for human beings to run a sub four-minute mile. I have no doubt that it is impossible for me to run a sub four-minute mile. I'm happy if I get like nine and a half. But... We just People didn't believe it could be done until Roger Bannister was able to pull it off with 0.25 seconds to spare. It was unbelievable. It was unheard of in the world of athletics. They thought this will never happen again. This record is going to stand for the ages, but less than a year later, someone else was able to do it too. It just took one person to show the way. Now, about 20 high school students have run a sub-four-minute mile. Or I could tell you the story of, of uh, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. And they were, they were given the commission by uh, President Thomas Jefferson to look for a water route to the Pacific Northwest, find the rivers that would take them to the other side of the U.S. because uh, the United States had just got this territory and they wanted to settle it. And, 
And Lewis and Clark thought that the road, the path, the easiest way would be to take rivers. And they thought that they would just travel through the, the Midwest. And if you've experienced the Midwest, you know it's just kind of mostly flat with kind of a gentle slope. You go through Kansas and Nebraska, it's pretty boring. Until they got to the top of the Continental Divide, which they'd find another one of those sloping rivers just to take down to the Pacific Ocean. What they didn't count on and they didn't know was there were the Rocky Mountains, which happened to be kind of a big obstacle. And so they had to improvise. They sent their keelboat barges, which had taken them this far, back to Missouri and instead figured out how to use canoes to travel the mountains. I want us to think today in this text about this idea of of trailblazer. And if you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 2 because we're going to be looking at the text that was read, but there's also going to be verses around it uh, and following that you want to kind of keep your eye open for. I want us to think about this idea of pioneer or trailblazer, uh, and particularly in the settlement of the American West. Uh, Often they would go in wagon trains and they'd go for safety uh, and they'd have a trail boss that would lead them. Now, The reason that they would have a trail boss and safety was not so much uh, Native Americans who would attack them, although that was a small issue. By far, more people died of drowning uh, in the, the experience of the trail wagons than they did from Native American Indians because it was much more dangerous to try to chalk a wagon and ford a river than it was traveling through the country. And so you needed somebody that knew how to manage those rivers, knew the right place to put in and the right way to get across and the right way to get out. The danger of of traveling on the Oregon Trail was really not so much that you might be shot with a rifle or an arrow as it would be that you drink the water, wrong water, and you die from dysentery. More people died from dysentery than were attacked by Native Americans on the Oregon Trail. And so you needed someone to teach you how to drink the right water and eat the right food, which plants could kill you and which ones could feed you. The risk on the Oregon Trail was not so much that you would be attacked, or, but that you'd be abandoned. That you would break a leg or break an axle and you were stuck there and you needed someone that knew how to fix those things. It's not that you needed a trailblazer to navigate a map to show you the way to go. Crossing an unknown country is way more complicated than that because there is no map. And you can't get from here to there unless you have someone to show you how. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the preacher wants to set out that that Jesus is the final revelation from God. That everything that comes after Jesus is going to be a reflection on what Jesus did, what Christ did in the world. Everything else. There is no other more complete revelation than Jesus Christ as a human being. And in that finality, in that finality, there is intimacy. Because we can trust that we know who God is and what God does and what God will do. Because we saw the last word from God. And so today, I want to submit a a different idea for you today. It's not that your desire is bad. It's not that your desire is sinful. God created you with those desires. 
the impulses that you have, the inclination that you have. God created you with those desires, and each one of those things has a proper home. It has the right and correct and holy expression. The problem is, is that our desire is often unregulated and and poorly focused, and, and our clumsy effort ends up wrecking things. Even when you want to do good stuff, have you ever experienced this where you want to do the right thing for the right reason and it still came out terribly? It's not just that I am sinful. It's also that I am naively incompetent. And the author uses this word uh, pioneer uh, here and he's going to use it again. She might use it again in chapter 12. It's also used in only two other places in Scripture. It's in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5. Both of them come from the mouth of Peter. The first time, uh, Peter and John are going to heal a crippled person. And then later, when Peter is confronted by the Sanhedrin. And both times, the ruling power will try to arrest and kill him for what he says. Elsewhere, outside of Scripture, this word pioneer is used to describe the person who founds a city. Edmund Hillary couldn't get up Everest without Tenzig Norgay. And Jefferson couldn't open up the American West without Lewis and Clark. And we can't get to a heavenly city unless someone shows us the way. Which is kind of a different way of understanding salvation, maybe from the way that you taught or the way that you think about it. The problem isn't that you're sinful and that God is angry with you and in God's frustration of anger, Jesus kind of steps in and says, I'll take the punishment for him uh, and then Jesus dies on the cross. The problem isn't that God is angry with you. The problem is, is that we don't know how to adapt our lives out of the broken and default state of the world so that we can train ourselves to get to the new place. Nobody thought you could run a four-minute mile until somebody did. Now, I don't want you to understand that this idea of salvation, of the problem isn't so much sin as it is ignorance, and the solution isn't so much uh, a sacrifice as it is a moral example that shows us how to weigh. This isn't to take anything away from the cross. This is the cross, but it's also so much more. In the West, we've kind of divided these ideas. We'll talk about justification, and we'll talk about sanctification. And when we say justification, what we mean is justified before God. It's that moment that you accept Jesus as Lord, and you're going to commit your life to be a servant to him. Maybe that's expressed in in the experience of baptism. That's how we experience it here. And and in that moment, your, your, your fate is sealed. Your home is secure. Jesus' blood covers you, and that's the end of the story. Except for the fact that that's never the end of the story. Is that we spend the rest of our lives living into the truth of Jesus and watching Jesus, studying Jesus, experiencing the Holy Spirit as it transforms us, and it makes us better people. That as we lean into the promise of God, we become more virtuous with things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And that's what the theologians in the West would call sanctification. You are justified before God, but you spend the rest of your life growing into the closer and better image of God. And this is why, hopefully, if if we're doing our work together, that, that we're more patient than we were five years ago. 
Did we have more love in our hearts for strangers than we did 10 minutes ago or 10 years ago? Did we have more self-control? Do we exhibit these fruit of the Spirit? And we look a little more like Jesus. The East, and I'm, I'm kind of convinced that the author of Hebrews is, is thinking more in that Eastern mindset than our Western mindset, blends these ideas of justification and sanctification so close together that they're seamless. You can't really tell where one starts and the other finishes. And this is why we here at the Highland Church engage in the pathway, those big symbols over there on, uh, on the wall, that we engage in a process. Our life is this rhythm of worship, of, of glorifying God, of table, experiencing the goodness of one another and seeing Jesus in one another, of baptism, which begins not only in the moment where we give our lives to Jesus, but it begins at our baby blessing where we commit our children to be raised into a certain path in a certain direction. And, and those three things create in us a desire to, to engage in self-emptying service, that we find others that we can help because Christ has helped us. And through this process of engaging in these four pathways, we experience the restoration, the glory of heaven, not just one day when we die, but in our lives right here and right now. Because this isn't about a difficult river to cross or a tall mountain to climb, death is the barrier that we cannot cross. And humans are ingenious creatures. We have found a way to survive and explore just about every place on this planet, from the highest peak to the bottom of the lowest part of the ocean. We have even traveled to the moon. We have made places that are completely inhabitable to us habitable. But death is not an ocean. It's not a move, moon. Death is the Andromeda galaxy. It is a barrier that we cannot cross. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus frees those who all their lives were held in the slavery by the fear of death. And there's, there's two dimensions of this. There is the spiritual slavery of death. That is the experience of sin that ruins our lives. And there's also the psychological anxiety of the reality of our own future death that causes us to make sort of all sorts of unconscious and conscious choices to avoid it. But Jesus is able to defeat death and to create a trail that we can follow. And he does this by his own death the, the preacher says that he, he uses his own death to defeat the one that's in charge of death, that is Satan, and freed us all. Now, I don't want you to get the sense, that, the sense that this is how kind of Jesus laid out some markers on a hiking trail. And so all you have to kind of do is follow the path that Jesus that made, and you're going to get there on your own. That's not how this works. The only way that you can defeat death is the complete reliance on Jesus to pull you through. We are lost and wandering sheep without the good shepherd. We are captive to sin and bent to our own desires. But we kind of hang on to the edge of Jesus' garments, and he pulls us through. I had one of those experiences in high school that um, I was on a, a youth group retreat, 
It was kind of one of those moments that seemed like a lot of fun when I was 14, but reflecting on it now that I'm 40 made me really question the, the judgment of my youth minister. Um, we were doing this experiment where we were, we were blind and we had someone that was guiding us. We, had, we were wearing a, a, you know, blindfolds and the person couldn't touch us. They could just walk us through. And we were up in the, the Colorado mountains because I grew up in Denver. And my partner was, was walking me around trees and over rocks and up hills and all this stuff until we came to this certain point where uh, my youth minister said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through this next part. And he grabbed me forcefully and pulled me close to him. And we began walking along, and trees began to hit me in the face, like pine tree branches and needles began to hit me in the face. And then it really just, like, I was, he was pushing me into a tree. And I, and I did what naturally happens. I like hitting a tree. You kind of push back so you're not hitting it. And my youth minister would not budge. He just keeps me against these trees. We walked through, like, three trees, and then he says, okay, keep going. I later find out what had happened was our youth minister had led us next to this ravine, and he really didn't want to go back the other way again. And so he had us walking on this like 24-inch trail where on one side was trees, on the other side was a cliff that was like 40 feet down. Um, I couldn't have made it with someone just giving me instructions. I would have fallen into that ravine to my death. It was only because someone was hanging on to me. I was hanging on to, to my youth minister's garment that I was able to go through. That's the only way that we get through the experience of death. And Jesus pulls us through. Jesus didn't come to save angels. Remember last week when we talked about uh, angels, how Jesus is higher than the angels. He's not really talking about angels. He's talking about the law. Jesus didn't come to save the law or institutions, or cultures. Jesus came as a human being to save his family. And you and I are his brothers and his sisters. He is the firstborn son of us all. And he leads us to a place that if it were not for him, we would not be able to go. Jesus Christ, the pioneer, the founder, the trailblazer, and the perfecter of our faith. Thanks be to God. Would you please stand for our benediction? I want to restate the words that we heard just a moment ago from Hebrews chapter 6. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever. May you this week experience the love, the grace, the mercy of God. And may you cling tightly on to our firstborn eldest son, Jesus, as he carries us through the wasteland of death, as he carries us home. Go in peace.